Hey Remakers, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Lily Spencer, co-director of Australia Remade. And for those who don't know us, Australia Remade is an alliance of leaders and thinkers or nonprofit really focused on the question of what is our yes? We know what we don't want, but that's not enough. What do we actually want and what are the system changes that get us there? I love these questions. I love that I get paid to think about this stuff and talk about this stuff. And this season, I've been really thinking about that in relation to the economy. What is our yes? What is the economy that we want and that serves us and helps us to meet our needs without harming each other or our planet? And we know that a huge piece of this question, a huge piece of the answer to this question is business, right? And and how it's structured, things that drive it. And, and I'm thrilled to have on the program today someone who really gets and is at the heart, I would say at the, at the sort of center of the beating pulse of this movement right now here in Australia. So today I'm talking to Sally Hill. She is an impact investor. She's the general manager of an impact investing firm called Triple. She's also the founder of the Purpose Conference, which was something that she created way back in 2015 to really gather like-minded business leaders and also push the envelope among them, you know, of what was possible, what was being considered, what was being talked about. And so I get to pick her brain today about what is it like from inside the business community perspective? What are the things holding people like her back? What are the changes that still need to happen? How could government be more useful? And what is she excited about? What is she seeing? momentum, what are the things that really need to change. It's a really delightful conversation with someone who really gets it and who's also spent part of her career in the nonprofit kind of advocacy space. And I talked to her about what inspired her to kind of put her change making efforts into the business world. Um, So it's a really enlightening, really enjoyable conversation with someone who is incredibly switched on and inspiring and Um, She's also offering a discount code for anyone who listens to this and wants to get along to the conference that's happening in November in Sydney. So check your show notes for that. Here is the delightful Sally Hill. Remakers podcast. It is absolutely delightful to be sitting and having a chat with you on what I hope is a gloriously sunny day where you are there in Sydney. It is a beautiful day. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I have been um, in a similar circle to you and kind of watched some of the things that you've been doing from afar. I think it's really cool how you've had this background in nonprofits and advocacy, and you've sort of worked on things like, you know, advising the Climate 200 group. Um, as well as like groups like WWF. And now you're kind of finding yourself in this like for purpose business space. And I'm curious about how you came to be doing this work and what that, I don't even necessarily want to be binary about it and be like, what did that flip or what did that switch look like? But it's been a bit of a journey, right? To go from one to the other and how you kind of came to want to work in the business space to have an impact for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand why you can see those things as um, almost counter to each other in some ways. Because when you're in the, you know, in the campaigning world, sometimes the target of your campaigns, your advocacy, is actually the corporate world or 
the way governments are designing policy that maybe you know prioritizes companies and profit over people and communities and the environment so um i really understand that that doesn't make perfect sense all the time and it actually is a really complex area and um and yeah like i actually i actually sort of switched or flipped over fairly early in my career but i've gone back and forth mm-hmm. quite a bit so i guess i did essentially and originally come at it from the angle of you know social and environmental justice being really important to me um, early on in my life and and cutting my teeth, you know, at GetUp where um, I think we had some crossover or at least we know some similar I think people. I was there before you, but yeah, we both yeah. worked there. Yeah. Um, and was exposed to, you know, incredible people, campaigners, was definitely exposed to issues that I, that I perhaps hadn't been taking as seriously as I was by the time I left GetUp. So things like climate change and, um, yeah, a lot of the way, you know, democracy works and or or dysfunctions in Australia. Um, and what I found was, well, I guess a moment that I had at Get Up that was really important for me was working on the guns pulp mill campaign, which was really where Get Up and other campaigners were finding that the typical tools of community opposition or lobbying the relevant minister for change just wasn't working. And we took a different tack, you know, or what least get up decided to at the time I was really young and just sort of you know watching and learning um but there was a sort of an <laughs> mobilization of their members as consumers and customers of banks um at the time that was really innovative at the time but it's actually very common now to see sort of a brand reputation campaign or a shareholder activism campaign as a way to yeah you know make a change on an issue so I became I guess really interested in that lever of change but I could also see that so many of the problems that we have that are the really deeply entrenched problems are to do with business so they are you know problems of money in politics they're problems of you know corporate responsibility or lack of corporate responsibility of complex global supply chains that don't put people first don't put the environment first um and power and decision making that's really locked up in the you know and and this huge concentration of wealth as well in the corporate world so um, I now am a business person, an entrepreneur, an investor. So I, I definitely look at all sides of it. Um, I'm still absolutely an advocate for ethical and responsible business. Um, but I guess I see it now as more as a systemic issue that is not about an evil person or an evil corporation, but a truly systemic challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those looking at it systemically is like most people don't go into business to make the world worse. So what are the systemic barriers to change, which I want to get into as well as kind of some of the maybe systemic solutions. Um, but just even zooming out from that a little bit. So you created this conference called Purpose. It brings together all of these perfect purpose-driven businesses. You work in impact investing now. I'm curious for you because it seems like a definition that could be seen as just subjective or, you know, what does a purpose-driven business do you have a sense of what that means for you? Do you have your own definition of what that is? Yes, yes, I do. And for me, I called the conference purpose and had arrived at this view that um, there's a difference between a company who's looking at doing, you know, setting up a foundation and distributing some of its profits towards, you know, charitable causes or a company that might have, you know, a CSR program in place to take the 
the edge off some of the worst things it's doing. Um, whereas a purpose-driven business, in my view, is a is a company that is modelled firstly around solving a social or environmental challenge, um, but, but the thought has gone into how that can actually be a business model. And I believe this is like almost like the true essence of what businesses were always meant to do. They were they were meant to create value. They were meant to create progress and move our societies forward. Um, but as we said, you know, there are these systemic issues that mean that that isn't balanced well. And um, and unfortunately, we have a situation where profit is put first um, at the expense of so many other things and also so many costs, the costs that society bears, the costs the, the environment bears are externalised outside of businesses or outside of the economy. Um, so really purpose-driven business is, is this kind of movement of people thinking, okay, if business is what we've got at the moment, like it really is one of the core organizing principles of our society, whether we like it or not, it shapes the world we live in. Can we leverage that to be creating true, real value and, and moving us forward rather than backwards on, on whatever measure, you know, you're, you're passionate about. Um, it's not for me around like finding your purpose in life. It's not about cause-based, um, charities, which are also really, really important and advocacy, you know, I care deeply about, but it's actually about how can we get the businesses at their core to be behaving ethically and responsibly and as good corporate citizens um, in the interest of their own longevity, their social license, everyone else's trust in business and the economy. And, and just to be like, you know, useful in the world, which is what everyone wants and what we all need. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, for, for those of us who are understandably skeptical or unclear on this or have just seen too much greenwashing, and I've even heard the term now purpose washing from business, mm-hmm. like what are some of the hallmarks of, of an organization, of a company that is actually really deeply embedding its social or environmental mission into its core work and not just telling us about it through an ad campaign or a PR moment on Pride Day or whatever it may be? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd say there's a number of things. One is um, the business model. Um, so it's, and and I guess flagging that it is a lot easier for new companies and younger, smaller companies to develop a model for making money and you know doing good at the same time, rather than making profit over here and then doing good with the with some of the you know philanthropic funding. Um, but really, there's this term in impact investing called impact revenue lock. So you ideally want to be in a business model where the more business you do, the more products and services you exchange, the better your net benefit on society and the environment. So if you think of, you know, a regenerative um, production practice that actually works in symbiosis with nature or repairs or give back gives back to the community as much as it takes, then you're starting to think about, or you're starting to get towards what is a truly beneficial um, company or product in its manufacturing or in its development. And the more of that product you sell or the more of that service you sell, the better off we all are. Um, Now, that's a really challenging concept to many large businesses. Like we said before, like all of these costs have been externalized in our current economy. So the cost of carbon is externalized. The cost of labor is, is kind, you know, somewhat, externalized um if we were to pay the true cost of what so many of the things we we consume um they're going to be really expensive 
But that's the kind of the path we're beginning to move down is, okay, company maybe needs to be responsible for the the whole life cycle of its product so that that product end up in life's landfill or, um, you know, it has to be responsible for any negative unintended consequences that this product or service might have. Um, And it's a sense of thinking deeply and thinking holistically in the way that businesses operate and it's it's a challenge. It's it's not something our current system does very well, but there are people starting to really try to imagine outside the bounds of what a business could look like, what the economy could look like, um, making pretty serious interventions into like playing around with those models. So I want to come to some of those people that might be inspiring you or people that we might want to go and check out. But before we do, like I'm imagining that if I'm a CEO and I'm trying to run this really ethical business and I'm trying to maybe as a starting point, look at how do we actually bring in all of the externalities and cost that into what we're doing so that we're not running a profit because we haven't actually paid for a bunch of things. Um, It seems like there are two choices. Either I take a massive pay cut or my shareholders do, Mm -hmm. or I dramatically like pass on price hikes to consumers who are used to paying kind of Sometimes, you know, we've had that experience. I'm sure many of us are walking into a shop and just looking at something and thinking, there is no way this should be that cheap. Like this is actually too cheap. It feels kind of almost wrong. Um, And so at the same time, you know, in today's climate of inflation and people really struggling, like, wow, that's a big ask. So what, you know, I can imagine that as, as we move that way as a collective and maybe regulation starts to catch up and we can shift some of these sort of structural environments that people are in that becomes maybe somewhat more possible. But I'm just trying to imagine, like, how is it for a company right now trying to do that? Because you'd sort of feel like you were just a bit nuts or going it alone, or you're that altruistic CEO that's like, yeah, sure, I'll just work for an average wage rather than a ridiculously inflated one. Like, is there even a move for that kind of conversation within the businesses that you're working with? Yeah, there's there's a whole range of responses to that. So um, some companies have successfully set themselves apart by taking really strong leadership positions on this stuff. Um, like, uh, you know, there's a handful of examples I can think of that are true, the true leaders in this space. So companies like Interface Floor, who since the 80s set themselves this, um, you know, before it was cool, <laughs> since the 80s, the, the CEO um, of this, you know, global carpet manufacturing company um, had had a personal epiphany around the environment and he said, you know, today's captains of industries are going to be the people that we look back on and think they're, you know, they're essentially responsible for huge crimes against humanity and the environment because of what they're doing. Um, and he said about sort of changing his company all the way through from, the, you know, from the inside out, um, redesigning the way their product was manufactured, but also actually redesigning their whole business model from a buy and sell um, carpet company that used to just lay sheets of carpet with toxic glues. This is like petrol, pe- petrol plastic um, carpets and then and then be done with it, you know, and, and that carpet would end up in landfill in huge volumes, like in the, the amounts coming out of their factory work were huge. It was a big American company and um, set about slowly. Yeah. So, so they now use, um, they now have a service and flow business model where they sell carpet tiles. So when that tile, that single tile. Oh, wow. And 
repurpose all the materials. They have a completely circular manufacturing process. And then now they do even amazing things like pulling ghost nets out of the ocean and using those materials in their carpet. So not only are they circular, but they're actually like sort of trying to be net positive in pulling pollution out of the ocean. Um, and the way he transformed the company was, you know, he says is he looked to nature for everything from the manufacturing to the designer, to the design, to the, to the business model itself. He copied or, or mimicked principles in nature because nature's, you know, regenerative. Um, so that's a, an example. Um, the B Corp movement I also find really interesting. That's sort of an attempt to tackle this challenge of the shareholder primacy. So what B Corp in originally was about was really um it's so it's a certification. Most people know it as a bit of a brand stamp. Um, but its genesis was around trying to extend um directors' responsibilities to be responsible in the longer term rather than on a quarterly profit cycle um, for not only shareholder profits, but for the benefit, you know, benefit to communities and benefit to the environment. So changing the kind of the goalposts and the definition of success for company directors who can be held to account, um, you know, very seriously if they're not acting in the best interest of their shareholders at the moment. Um, and, you know, the other responses like... Explain that one a little bit to people because I think that, sure. um, you know, so shareholder primacy, this idea that you have a legal obligation to maximise your share price. Yeah. And as a company director and a for-profit company, you can be legally accountable for not doing that. And you just look at that and you think that is madness. Like, how can we expect people to make good long-term decisions and factor in the whole of the community stakeholders, the employees, the supply chains, the natural world, the impact, mm-hmm. when at the end of the day, they will be raked over the coals if they do not maximize a short-term profit. Awesome. And mm-hmm. like, I, I'm curious how businesses are grappling with that because if that is still a legal requirement, how do we move from shareholder to stakeholder in yeah. our business model? Yeah, we're not we're not there yet. So um so B Corp in America has has managed to get a legal um like a changed definition of a company. So a company that is a B Corp has different articles of incorporation and different um responsibilities on the directors. It's not there yet in Australia. Um it's just still a, I guess, a certification of a, a certain very high level of accountability and ethics and responsibility in a business. Um but yeah, I mean, this is one of the core challenges. Um, even in a private company, you know, the the profit motive is really, really strong. Um, some of the businesses that you see that are the real successes in this space are privately held, and they're able to make you know decisions in you know in isolation of of kind of the rest of the economy and the way that stuff works. Um, but yeah, there's going to I believe there's going to need to be a shift on the way that kind of the time horizons that companies work to um, and the way that it works because it's it's just incredibly extractive and, you know, of of human and natural resources. And the problem is that it just has to keep becoming more extractive and more profitable um, more and more over time. And, I mean, we could get into the degrowth movement. Yeah, and all, all of that. Yeah. But, yeah. 
Yeah. I'm curious if you have much experience or encounter often um, co-ops in any of these spaces. I was really surprised to learn because I thought of a co-op as like my local fruit and veg hippies shop that may or may not exist in my neighborhood. And then I started researching it a little bit more. And so co-op is like an employee owned company rather than a company owned by a single investor or remote shareholders. And I was really surprised to learn that there were more than 1,700, apparently, according to like the Co-op Association of Australia, and 1,700 in Australia, and they operate in everything from like wine to manufacturing to childcare, retail, engineering, like almost every product or service category you could think of. And that, and they do range from your neighborhood hippie co-op, fruit and veg place to like multinational kind of conglomerates mm, mm. and you know that seems to me like an interesting alternative business model that is more incentivized to kind of make better long-term decisions hopefully share the wealth more equitably be more accountable to a bigger range of stakeholders do you think that there's movement within the business community to kind of if it's not co-ops at least other models of business that can help us to kind of be better humans is that something that people are talking mm. about <laughs> It's a really, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, people are definitely, definitely talking about how to be better humans within business. I, to be honest, don't hear a lot of people talking about the co-op model, but I think they should be talking about it. You're exactly right. It's a really, it's a really brilliant model. It's existed for, you know, centuries perhaps. Yeah, it's not new. Yeah. Almost like one of the original forms of people organizing um, around, you know, production. Um, And I remember when I lived in the UK, it was very common for for businesses to call themselves cooperatives, to hear of cooperatives. In Australia, I haven't seen it as much, and I'm similarly surprised to hear there's 1,700 co-ops. Yeah, they're not as visible, but maybe, I don't know, maybe they need a PR campaign. I mean, I'm curious what you think government could be doing or where you see appetite from business for more support from government for some of these supports to kind of make some of these transitions to a more pro-social business model just to get a bit more creative like we don't just have to keep doing everything the same way we've always done it like people want purpose people want to do good in the world and they want their work to be aligned with their values like they do yeah we we should be making it easier not harder for that to be kind of the new normal do you have things that you think if you could wave a wand and just like get government even if it's just starting a conversation are there things that you think government could be doing to help yeah I mean Oh my gosh, through my work at Purpose and my work at Triple, I see this. There's an incredible volume of people desperate to do something, like whether it's on climate change or whether it's on waste or whether it's on, you know, helping people in their neighborhood. Um, there's actually so much innovation going on at the moment. Um, but there's not a lot of pathways for those people to access, like say VC funding or funding from a bank or traditional methods of um funding through business um and it's it's a fairly precarious economy for a lot of people anyway let alone people going out and doing um something to start a business or a social enterprise or a or whatever they're doing um and I really do think business uh, sorry I was government rather could get ahead of this so much more you know it's almost like you see them waiting until there's models that work to then get behind um, new ideas, whereas they're probably, you know, 10 years behind where the innovation is at and where the emerging um, energy is for this kind of change. So, I mean, stating the obvious, but I think, you know, grants, um, investment, there's a whole lot of models for funding 
um, organizations as well that work really well for government. So like payment by outcome or um, a whole lot of stuff. And that lets them get to a level where they could attract significant, um, you know, commercial investment. But it, it's it's interesting. I think, I mean, our education system as well, arguably is a little outdated. Um, a lot of government regulatory bodies are very outdated when it comes to issues like waste or carbon. Um, so there's a big, you know, there's a big shift that I think will, yeah, will go on, um, but it's happening too slowly for all of us. I think we're all impatient to see this change and just want to see it turbocharged, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that comes up kind of time again, and, and anytime I'm involved in any sort of research around asking people, what do you think of government? What do you think of business? It's like people both, what comes out is people's anger towards capitalism, and like lack of trust in in some ways toward it. But at the end of the day, they know that business gets stuff done. They know that business is fast. They know that business is responsive. They know that business is driven to innovate. They want to see that harnessed for good. And then they look at government and they know that it has the potential to do good things, but it's this frustration of, oh, but government's not going to do it. It's too slow. It's, you know, it's it's just too much layered in bureaucratic stuff. It's not it's not able to come to the table in the time that we need to get stuff done. And so that we almost feel caught in this conundrum between like the people with the power and the money, the efficiency, and the know how to get stuff done, have all the perverse incentives. And then like, not the business is the bad guys and government is the good guys, but the people whose job it is to kind of look out for the public good are sort of trembling, you know, trundling along. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one thing, one thing business has the power to do, sorry, government has the power to do that business it's harder for business is look at those externalities and I guess the picture of the whole economy or the whole system. So like you're saying, a business individually, it's pretty hard for them to say we're going to factor in all the costs of these externalities and try to stay afloat as a business. But if you look at government and treasury, and there is this idea now of sort of triple bottom line treasury and looking at the whole picture, looking at health outcomes, looking at the mental health crisis, which, you know, a lot of people link to overwork or disconnection from the community or environment. Um, and if you look at the cost that governments are going to have to bear on climate change, it is just incredibly expensive for them to, to sit out and not do anything on this stuff. Um, so I think government could really be in this position uniquely it's one of the reasons they are different to the private sector is that they can take that longer view, can take a whole of economy view. And yeah, I'd be really excited to see that. Yeah, look, I've I read a bit of Mariana Mazzucato's work, um, who's this great economist, and she talks about the kind of um the idea of the entrepreneurial state and can like admission economy and, yeah. and you know what government investment, like government has been painted in, under this kind of neoliberal rhetoric of business good, government bad, you know, as like the best they can hope to do is come in and fix market failures. And she's saying, no, 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 like government can be market shaping. And I think a great, you know, we've had examples of that through history, through like the NASA space program, giving us like literally the technology we are using to record this podcast on right now would not exist. Our phones would not exist. Like all kinds of things that we just use in our day-to-day lives would never have happened without the early government investment. I mean, Elon Musk would not have happened without government investment in Tesla, like so many of those things. And, you know, on climate change, like we know that governments around the world are still subsidizing fossil fuels to the trillions, like it's mind blowing. 
and we have the Biden administration with their um, possibly poorly named Inflation Reduction Act, but it's basically the Green New Deal and it's driving a lot of investment in the US and they say that they're global implications for that. Do you think there's a new conversation happening now in Australia post the, you know, the climate election where we got up all of the community independence? Like, is there finally momentum happening to like, okay, it's time to catch up. Like it's time to really all work together and kind of take these challenges seriously. Do you feel like the conversation, and I've, I've also heard people say that since COVID, the conversation has really changed around business because we're so much more aware of wanting Um, their work to be aligned with their values and to have that meaning and that there's more pressure on companies to sort of deliver that. I'm curious what you're hearing on some of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, from a political point of view, I'm a little bit sceptical that there's going to be sweeping change quickly in Australia, even though arguably the government does have a mandate to act on climate change. Um, I think also in Australia in particular, we're we're going to be dealing with adapting to climate change so urgently that um, I think it could actually interfere with our progress towards net zero, as in we're going to be dealing with disasters um, that are going to be the most pressing um, thing we need to deal with, which distracts us from actually decarbonizing the economy. Um, obviously, it's both so sad. <laughs> it's insane. It's just like absolutely loopy. Um <laughs> Uh, but there's, yeah, there is increasing pressure for, you know, for us to, to just stop burning fossil fuel in Australia. I think that's most, most people really get that. I think the fires was a real turning point here as well. Um, and yeah, I think COVID, yes, absolutely made people think differently. It was an amazing moment, wasn't it? For, um, for helping people think outside the norm and the current reality, because we all stopped and said, whoa, this, you know, something has to change. And it did. It just, it was able to, we were actually able to change remarkably swiftly in so many parts of the economy. And the other thing that I think was remarkable about COVID is it helped people see systems um, in that they understood suddenly that all these goods that they use are from coming to them from all over the world um, and that those systems are quite fragile and and that we are all interconnected. So there was a thing there about, yeah, people's mindset shift. Um, but I love the stuff you're saying about the, the entrepreneurial state. I could not agree more. Like I really think that, um, yeah, there's a, if, you know, hopefully we're going to have an, a renaissance of, of green manufacturing, green energy, green business, um, and that, I hope and assume will be led by government here, but I don't know. I don't know. So to take the um, the less optimistic view for a second, you mentioned degrowth in passing um, a minute ago. And so my understanding of that, a sort of school of thought is like, there's no such thing as green growth. Mm. Mm-hmm. In, like that on a finite planet, we, you know, that we can't keep increasing the size of the pie when the oven is only so big. And so it's critical and there are, advocates like Jason Hickel and others who say it's really critical that um, we actually, instead of making economic growth our goal, that we almost flip that script and say, okay, how are we going to reach a steady state economy? How are we going to live well without this model that demands greater and greater extraction, more and more people more buying more and more stuff, you know, as our quality of life gets better, the demand 
still increases, right? Because we have these advertising industries telling us all the time that we need the next latest thing. So there's there's a big school within ecological economics saying, we got to shut this off. Like we just, otherwise things are going to collapse. Like people are seriously freaking panicked about this. I'm assuming within the business sector, degrowth is a bit of a non-starter as a term and as a conversation. Like it just seems so antithetical to everything about the business mindset that we have come to think about. And, you know, I've, I've had other economists say to me, they're just as obsessed with growth as the other guys are. And actually grow, you can be growth agnostic. Like it doesn't have to be kind of one extreme or the other. If, if you, <laughs> Richard Dennis um, was on the podcast recently and he said, you know, if you give your neighbor a massage and they give you a massage and you each pay each other 50 bucks, you've added a hundred dollars to, to GDP, but you haven't hurt anybody. You haven't, you know, you haven't done any harm to the environment. So Again, like, you know, in a way, it's a very big question to throw at you and be like, what's the business view on degrowth? But I am curious, is this a conversation that's even happening or is it probably yeah. just off there in a corner somewhere? Um, I would say it's, I mean, it's definitely happening. Whether it's happening within businesses, I don't know. Um, it's not a conversation I'm raising with businesses, for example, like through through purpose. Because I, I mean, we're really strategic at Purpose Conference to kind of push the agenda, right? Push the ambition level for businesses um, and drop in these brand new ideas. Like in 2015, we were talking about natural capital and circular economy. They were very progressive ideas that slowly get absorbed in, you know, and there's that, it's a bit like the Overton window, but for companies, like what we can tolerate. Yeah. 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 Um, And at the moment, I mean, to me, it's incredible that there's mainstream conversation about the four-day week. That was that was a growthy kind of proposition a little while ago. Um, and actually, a, a reduced week is part of a degrowth model. Um, but the reorganization and restructuring of business and the economy around degrowth is a big, scary challenge to the business world. You're right. It's it's like existential risk sort of level of um, of challenge. So, but I think it is becoming way more palatable to a lot of people. And yeah, your your um your setup was like spot on. Like it's exactly um what it's about. It's about physical limits, like the limits to growth, planetary boundaries. Um there's an a metaphor someone used once, which I thought was brilliant, was you know, our our economy or capitalism is kind of like a bulldozer moving through the planet's, you know resources just like going for it and you can power the bulldozer with petrol or you can power it with power but it's still a bulldozer oh um yeah and yeah it's really it's really challenging we've got to think about how do we yeah you're right how do we stop how do we pause this or how do we slow it down um whether or not we can really have that conversation and change until we absolutely have to is the thing I'm thinking about a lot at the moment. Like what we've seen with climate change is people change when it's crisis point, like when there's actually a circuit breaker that says we've got to move, asking them to do it beforehand. Unfortunately, doesn't our, our political system, our society does not seem well set up to do that, but maybe there are ways to help people take that leap of imagination and start moving towards it before it what's absolutely critical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I, I really love that reflection and I think it's really honest and, and really spot on. Um, 
And I will also love what you were saying about the way that you are doing purpose as an event in, in kind of being really strategic about, okay, where, where are we at? What are the ideas that we can push? How can we not only gather the people who are trying to be at the forefront, um, but you know, you've got a pretty big range of people involved in that. And so I'm curious about a little bit about kind of why you started it and, you know, the thing that you mentioned, you know, about what was kind of radical, you know, a few years ago and is now becoming more mainstream. I'm curious what you think that's at now. Like, what are you looking to, what ideas are you looking to seed yeah. this year? And what are people, what, what's the appetite? What are people ready to hear and talk about yeah. it? Maybe they wouldn't have been. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, so the ideas that I'm seeing sort of emerge and bubble up that I'm really interested in and we'll be, we'll be dropping into the program at Purpose are things like, um, I mean, regenerative business, that's an example of something that's probably fairly widely talked about now, but I would want to take it even to a more edgier place. So like um, what does like regenerative finance look like? That's something where um, we're looking at. But further from that, we're looking at Indigenous designed finance, which is thinking way outside the way the current um, financial system works. And there's a couple of speakers who are going to be speaking about this idea of um, so institutional investors at the moment, you know, they have huge, um, a huge influence on the way land and agriculture works in Australia because of the way loans are structured. So you think of a farmer who has a, a loan for um, his farm, the loan terms are basically that, again, short-termism, that he has to turn around profit on the farm to pay back the interest rates to the bank and it has to do that year on year on year and so there's no breathing room to think about regenerative farming or the long-term stewardship of that land and the long-term management of that land um and yeah there's a couple of guys in the program chris andrew and paul Girawa house who are going to be talking about indigenous design finance so that will it enable the management of land in the very long term or in perpetuity um, and that's, that's I guess, on that theme, one of the areas I'm really fascinated by at the moment is Indigenous knowledge systems. So I've been really inspired by Tyson Yunker-Porter's work um, and the work of Jack Manning-Bancroft from AIM. And, you know, if, if we're talking about how difficult it is to think outside this current system and the current dominant narrative, I think there's some answers there. Like they really... It's, it's a total different way of seeing, which is exactly what we need. Um, and there's some really incredible sort of um, when you deep, deep in, delve into it, it can be very um, like hard to grasp. Like I found myself having to read it a number of times, but when it lands, you just think, oh my goodness, it's been under our noses the whole time. And it's actually, actually fairly practically applicable and it talks to a lot of themes we've discussed like relationships and relational infrastructure in the way that indigenous knowledge systems see relationships is about all the possible impacts of your activities on all the people and things and species around you and it's sort of yeah it's it's embedded with this um these essential principles about how to live well in the really long term um and learn from the past and learn from the deep past and look at deep time and yeah I just think there's an incredible opportunity there in and, and I do honestly think Australia is going to become a source of kind of thinking and innovation for the whole world around this stuff um which is really exciting god wouldn't that be great mm. 
Um, all right. So tell people a little bit about this event because so, it's happening in Sydney and, you know, you can go online, you can get tickets. We'll be putting links and stuff into people's, um, you know, show notes. But who is it for, first of all? Who can just come along? And then what do you hope they're going to get out of something like this? Yeah, so it's really for um, a whole range of people. We we have people from almost every industry. It's industry agnostic, sector agnostic. So it was always designed to bring people together who care about progress on making business more ethical, responsible, sustainable, whether they are the CEO from a big corporate or whether they're someone who's that passionate agitator who's frustrated in a, in a big company or whether it's the B Corp you know, founder or employee or a social enterprise advocate or someone who works in the not-for-profit world or advocacy world and wants to interact with business or wants to think about, yeah, how to influence business. So um, I don't want to say it's for everyone because it's it's for people really passionate about this idea, this idea of purpose-driven business. But um, it's about coming together as people on that common, with that common interest and that common drive, but sort of agnostic of sector, I would say. Um, it's a professional event. It's about business. Um, everything we look at is through the lens of business. So we do sometimes, you know, have people say, is it for me if I work in, um, I guess, not in a business? And it, it's a tricky one because we don't look at every cause and every issue in depth. What we do look at is how it's being, um, how the business world or businesses through their structure and the investment can be leveraged to make change on this stuff. When is the event? Yeah, so it's on the 8th and 9th of November in Sydney at Carriage Works. I will put a link for you to put in the show notes, but it's just purposeconference.co. Um, I'll also send a discount code out for your listeners and for you. And yeah, I would love to see anyone and everyone there. It's a beautiful, warm community and we put a lot, a lot of love into the experience and the event. Uh, look, it has been just really a pleasure to to talk to you and to be able to canvas some of these ideas with you because I think that um, the not-for-profit world and the for-profit world, probably like the government world and some of the, you know, we need to talk more. And I think we have, um, and I know you've been part of both of them anyway, but just to actually, um, as you say, so often in the not-for-profit land where business is the bad guy, we're targeting them, we're telling them like, do better, you uh -huh. evil, you know, corporation. And we need accountability and we need advocates and we need people to say those things, but actually sitting down and having a dialogue of like, what are you trying to do here? And how do we change the rules and how do we empower a system that empowers you better rather than just assume that you like everything the way that it is when, you know, you're struggling within a system as much as the rest of us are. Um, but yeah, look, this has been really fascinating. I've learned a lot. I absolutely will have links to all of those things that you mentioned in the show notes for people who want to go and check it out and learn more. Um, and thank you so much. It's just been a delight to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for the chat. It was, it was really fun. was the utterly delightful and insightful Sally Hill. She is the general manager of the impact investing firm, Triple. We didn't really talk about impact investing, but essentially it's investing for a social and environmental return, not just a financial one. So she knows her stuff and she's also created this space for business to come together and really push the envelope of what does it mean to be purpose-driven? What does it mean to be a force for good? If that is a topic that is something you're passionate about, that's close to your heart, whether as a practitioner or someone who wants to influence and work with business, 
you can go check out the conference. It's happening in Sydney this year, 8th and 9th of November 2023. The website is purposeconference.co and you can use the code REMADE for 20% off your ticket price. Check your show notes there. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening, for sharing, for shaping this podcast. We appreciate it so much. We will see you next time over on The Remakers. For listening to the remakers i'm the host lily spencer and i record my part of these conversations from the beautiful guppy guppy country on the sunshine coast of queensland just want to honor the incredible elders of these lands and waters an aboriginal culture 60,000 years is the oldest continuing civilization on earth i also want to pay a shout out to our producer anna wilson to my colleague and sometimes co-host Dr. Millie Rooney. You can learn more about Australia Remade and everything we're about over on australiaremade.org. And in the meantime, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening and subscribing, sending us your thoughts. We really appreciate all of the support that you give the podcast. We'll see you next time over on The Remakers. Remakers.